Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from The Witches of Eastwick, made in 1987. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. I have loved The Witches of Eastwick ever since I first watched it as a college student in the 1990s when I was beginning to discover the filmography of John Williams. And the love of the movie begins and ends, of course, with the music by the maestro. Joining me today on the show is someone who loves the score just as much as I do. I'm thrilled to welcome back John Maria Caschetto to the show. You'll remember that he was my first co-host back when we talked about the 1970 film Story of a Woman, and now he's my first returning co-host. It's great to have you back, John Maria. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be back in year two of your podcast. Congratulations for making it this far. Uh, believe me, I'm an avid podcast listener, and those I like the best are the ones like yours that are spun from a great passion. Uh, but not many podcasts make like that manage to be this regular. Uh, it's also a great honor to be back as the first returning co-host. Uh, I hope I can live up to it. I have no doubt that you will. But before we get to talking about the Witches of Eastwick, I want to know about your trip to Vienna to see John Williams in concert. It yeah. was your first time seeing him conduct in person, right? Yes, it was the first time, and I was so happy that I could tick that off my checkbox, you know, from my bucket list. Uh, it was a great concert. I didn't never uh, get the chance to see John Williams. He didn't perform in Europe since 1998, I guess. I never tripped to the U.S. or whatever else to see him. So it was great that he was that he decided to come uh, to Europe uh, one last time, or maybe it's not the last time. Who knows? Uh, but I wanted to be there, and it was great because uh, the orchestra was in great shape. Uh, the brass section in particularly almost literally blew us away with the rendition of the Imperial March. Uh, and as a great treat to the concert was that uh, Anna-Sophie Muta, who did this uh, CD last year with John Williams, was also there and performed a handful of the new arrangements that uh, John Williams wrote for her, including the Devil's Dance, which are going to talk a lot about uh, later on. Um, but it was great to see John Williams, and he also was in great shape. He was in very good spirits. I think it, was, it meant a lot to him to be in Vienna. Uh, and he was also in remarkable physical shape because he conducted a two-hour two concert alone. You know, no co-host, no co-conductor. And, you know, he made it to the end and was really, really fresh also at the end. I mean, I was tired after the concert just for sheer clapping. So I can only imagine how hard it must be to, to conduct such a concert. Uh, and it was also very emotional, I must say. I was either grinning, you know, from one side of my face to the other because I was really uh, thrilled, or I was almost in tears because I had so much emotion connected to the pieces and to John Williams himself. And I was also, I was also great. I, you know, one, one thing that I really found special was that the Wiener Philharmonica, this orchestra has always been an institution of serious music, uh, you know, and uh, I never thought that in my lifetime I would have seen uh, such an, a serious music institution playing John Williams's music because like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the classical music world tended to look down to film music like, you know, the poor relation. And that's changed. I think, I think that we can also, I think that we can almost say that the days that uh, film music was looked down upon are officially over. So it was great to be, uh, you know, to be witnessing this special moment in history. There was also something very special for me personally, because my brother Maurizio, who runs the Legacy of John Williams website, was able to present personally Mr. Williams. Uh, with a print of the illustration I did for his website and uh, together with uh, a handwritten note uh, by my son Adam who is also a great fan so you know what's just an embarrassment of riches yes just to see John Williams and then for John Williams to get your illustration I'm sure it meant the world to you I am very envious for you for being able to be there and 
Uh, congratulations on finally being able to check that off your bucket list. It is a wonderful thing to be able to see John Williams in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a great conductor. I mean, it's also a great show. It's not just that you see him, uh, but it's also because usually he's, he's a great conductor. So it's always a great treat to hear such an amazing orchestra performing under his uh, command. It's really, really, really something. Right. So I'm going to talk with your brother Maurizio about his experiences when I have him on the show for The Accidental Tourist, and I can't wait to hear about it from his perspective. All right, so let's get started with our discussion of The Witches of Eastwick. And I remember that we both had a lot of issues with the film The Story of a Woman, which we talked about, uh, gosh, 30 episodes ago. And it made it hard for us to talk glowingly about Williams' score. But I don't think that's going to be the case this time around, at least for me. The Witches of Eastwick is my fourth favorite John Williams score, mostly because you could hear in every note how much fun Williams had in creating this music. Every yes. time I hear the music, no matter what scene, there's always a little smile on my face. Some scenes make me smile a little bit more, but this is definitely a score I never get tired of playing. And the movie is good, though not a masterpiece by any means. How did this score and movie make you feel, John Maria? Well, I enjoy the movie more than I love it. Uh, it's an eminently watchable film. I like to call it like that. There are some good performances, of course. There are great production values. But to a degree, I don't think the script itself is very tight. I'm not sure about what the movie is trying to say, if anything at all. I get the satirical angle about the prudish, you know, and the hypocritical town folk in this New England uh, setting, but the movie is not actually about that. Yeah, I think it's just pure entertainment with a little bit of an edge to it, not meant to turn the mirror on society. Now, Cher did a great movie about family called Moonstruck that year, and Jack Nicholson showed us the grim side of homelessness during the Depression in 1987's Ironweed. But this one, they did just for fun. Now, as always, some of the behind-the-scenes stories I share on the podcast are based on some conjecture, because there are always some gaps in my research. And that is the case for The Witches of Eastwick, especially as it pertains to bringing John Williams to the project, but I think I can't connect the dots here. It started back in 1985 with The Color Purple, which, as you know, was the first Steven Spielberg film to not feature a John Williams score. Serving as executive producers on that film were John Peters and Peter Guber, who had to veto Spielberg's request to hire John Williams for The Color Purple because they had secured Quincy Jones as composer in the very early stages of the film. But when the two served as producers of The Witches of Eastwick, Spielberg's voice was undoubtedly in their ears when it came time to hire a composer. Get John Williams, that voice said. And I can't imagine anyone was on the list above Williams. And it certainly helped that the movie was set for a release in the summer of 1987. Williams had plenty of time to devote to the score that spring before his summer stint with the Boston Pops. Uh, as easy as it was to get John Williams to write the score, casting came at a bit of a struggle, I think. Uh, Jeff, did you know that the producer approached Bill Murray to play the role of Daryl in the film? I discovered that as well while doing my research, and I'm glad Bill Murray dropped out. This isn't the type of comedy suitable to Bill Murray's talents. He managed to put a little romantic flavor into some of his previous performances, but this time he would have had to show some real evil as well, and that's just not Bill Murray. No, I don't think so. I mean, if you have to play the devil, I think you should call Jack Nicholson. I think the three ladies playing opposite to Jack Nicholson are also very good. Uh, Cher gives uh, believability and likability to the, I don't know, somewhat underwritten role of Alexandra. Michelle Pfeiffer brings her intensity to the role of Suki, and Susan Sarandon is clearly having fun playing the role of the repressed school teacher Jane, who blossoms into a sexy, dark lady. What's interesting is some of the character traits in the film are not in the original John Updike novel. In fact, most of the main plot of the novel was thrown out for the film's adaptation. There were two other central characters who play romantic rivals for Daryl, and of course, I want to warn you about spoilers ahead, but in the novel, Daryl doesn't die. And there is no real overt reveal that he is not really human. And the three ladies are already witches when the novel begins. So again, the goal was pure entertainment here over 
dark plot points that would have made this a very serious drama. I think that John Williams could have written great music for whatever type of movie he saw in the initial screening, but for this version, it is definitely the score that elevates everything. Uh, the final score is not completely straight, though. I think it, there is a playful, tongue-in-cheek quality to the music. And this offers to me an interesting insight when compared to John Williams's earlier comedies in the 1960s. Uh, as far as comedy writing goes, John Williams has matured a lot in 20 years. Uh, his scores back in the 1960s, while absolutely fine and showing great talents, uh, tended to be a little more uh, all over the place. I don't know if you find that uh, as well. But Williams was going almost in every direction and turning on a dime as the movies required and maybe writing a baroque pastiche there and a pop uh, source cue here and maybe a very romantic theme as well, all in the same score, while uh, Witches is far more cohesive. Uh, the score is a masterclass in terms of orchestration and harmonic language. And to me, harmonization, so the chords that sustain the melody, are what uh, make John Williams's music, you know, sound like John Williams's music. Um, I'm no musician myself, uh, but the more I've been listening to his work and the more I studied it through the analysis done by actual uh, music scholars, and the more I've come to realize that the harmonization is the signature trait of his style. Uh, and in The Witches of Wistwick, Williams is always enhancing the harmonies, you know, making the music slightly more dissonant here or more rich and romantic there. So, uh, and in terms of orchestration, my God, the score has a lot to offer. Uh, of course, there is the violin. Um, there are lush, unabashedly romantic passages for strings. Uh, there is a prominent use of the harpsichord to reflect, you know, I think, the highbrow setting of the town and also Daryl's aristocratic lifestyle. Uh, there are synthesizers that are used more than usual eh, to suggest eeriness and otherworldliness. But to me, the unsung hero of the score is the woodwind section. Uh, throughout the score, woodwind instruments like the flute, the clarinet, the oboe, uh, the bassoon uh, provide a lot of flavor, a lot of color with interesting counterpoint material. You know, woodwind writing of this caliber is sadly becoming a rarity in film music nowadays. Uh, for instance, the seduction of Suki is a great example of letting the woodwinds have their fun. It's a delicious passage and reminiscent of the composition of French composer Claude Debussy. Uh, it's great because for once, you know, the flute is not used in a breezy, innocent way, but it's used in a sultry, seductive one. And if we were to rank the three seduction cues, I would rank Suki's number three, but that doesn't mean I don't like it. <laughs> uh, it's great writing for the exact reason you described, but Let's take a step back a little bit and talk about the single theme Williams writes for all three of our leading ladies. In this case, the theme does a lot to set the tone of the film and how we should feel about Alex, Jane, and Suki. And with this light and bouncy theme, we're going to have a good time with the witches. Yeah. Well, I wasn't certain, you know, um, whether the theme was meant to represent the titular witches or Daryl. Because even the concert version of the piece changed its title from The Dance of the Witches, as it is on the CD, to The Devil's Dance, as it is known nowadays. You know, but since Daryl in the movie gets another theme, uh, I, can agree, I think we can agree that the main theme of the movie is about the three women, or at least about their powers. Uh, here's the theme as played in the concert suite.
uh, if you allow me, I'd like to indulge in a bit of analysis of the theme, uh, which is comprised of many parts. Uh, not being a musician myself, I've enlisted a pianist and conductor, Maestro Simone Pedroni, to help me in this breakdown of the witch's theme. Now, he's a fantastic pianist and a conductor and has performed the pieces by Williams in both capacities, so I couldn't think of anyone better to help me. You know, one element of the theme is a 4x4 four, uh, four cantilena. Um, there are two minor thirds interval alternating, you know, both, uh, both a semitone apart, you know, the dun dun, dun dun. You know, in the films and credits, uh, the idea is played by some sort of strange instruments uh, with some rattling, vibrating sounds. Uh, it's actually so low in pitch that it's almost hard to perceive those tones I just sung. Um, I have to credit my brother Maurizio once again uh, for digging up the manuscript of the score and finding out that in the movie it's not a synth that we hear, but a strange percussion instrument called, you know, go figure, Devil's Chaser. It was one of the strange and exotic pieces of percussion from the arsenal of studio musician and co collector uh, Emil Richards, uh, who sadly passed away in December last year. He was a fantastic performer. Um, and it has unearthed many, many, many great sounding percussions for scores by John Williams, for Jerry Goldsmith, for Michael Giacchino, Michael Kamen, you name it. Uh, for instance, he also played xylophone in the main theme of The Simpsons. So he was a truly a Los Angeles music legend. And so he came up with this strange instrument for, uh, for, for, for this score. And now the concert version of the piece uh, states these basic four notes uh, in a more grandiose way, you know, with bells and a fuller orchestra and other crazy percussion like the vibroslap or the jawbone, you know, which is an actual animal jawbone. Now, I was wondering if this interval, you know, dun, 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 um, were related anyway to the notorious late enchant, you know, the Dies Irae, uh, which you already discussed in your show, um, and which was one of the most quoted melody in music history. Uh, but that may be stretching a little bit too far because uh, the pitches aren't exactly the same, they are organized differently, but it's true that uh, this uh, very ominous uh, string of notes uh, serves as the basic pulse of the piece. But what makes it the dance, as the concert suite title suggests, you know, is the subdivision in triplets that Williams uses. You know, there is an ostinato that it's arpeggiating a minor triad, like a dun dun dun, and which gives the piece uh, its signature time of 12-8. So this idea of associating the devil with a dance has an illustrious predecessor in classical music. You know, Franz Liszt, for instance, wrote four Mephisto's waltzes and one Mephisto's polka. So this idea, okay, it's devil, so it must be a dance. And so I discussed it also with Maestro Pedroni and uh, because I thought that this rhythm, uh, which can be divided either by four or by three, identified this piece as a tarantella. You know, a tarantella is some sort of manic dance has uh, her origins in southern Italy, and as the legends tells, it's used. Uh, you know, it used to be performed in a state of trance. You know, uh, I know from experience. Now, believe me, when people are exposed to this kind of rhythm, people cannot stay still. You know, they have to nod along, they have to move their hips or tap their feet. You know, it's an infectious quality to me that is absolutely fitting for a piece of music about witchcraft. On the other hand, you know, Maestro Perdoni said, well, maybe it's not a tarantella because it's too slow, but I don't know. I still think that, uh, that that's it. I totally agree that it has a dance quality to it. I, I often find myself nodding my head to this theme quite often. Yeah, you cannot help it. No, absolutely not. So we don't have to wait long in the film to hear this main theme. It takes place throughout the opening credits. The music starts as the camera floats through the clouds with a synthesized tone accompanied by the strings. Get this, for a long time I never paid much attention to those opening chords, but since diving deep into the history of the opening music to Star Wars, 
I have always heard this opening bit as a throwback to the discarded idea of a swooping chord for the opening of Star Wars, this time building us to the opening notes of the main theme, which are played slowly, gently, innocently, as we fly over the town of Eastwick. And after it's played on keyboard, the fun part of the opening credits comes in with the violins churning out a great rhythm that will only be heard here. And as we meet two of our three ladies, we get some different permutations of their theme, starting with the appearance of the names Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer on the screen. I especially love this blending of the opening credits theme and the witch's theme, timed perhaps not by accident to the moment when John Williams' name shows up on screen. Yeah, and then we get to the first piece of underscore. As our three ladies talk about the perfect man, you know, as they do, a car arrives in Eastwick. And the dialogue that sets up this conjuring is written and acted fairly well. And by the way, what I like about the scene is the music. You know, the music is foreboding, starting with an ostinato figure in the horns playing a repeating note in triplets that really suggests that the hand of fate is at play. And I wonder, is also Williams being cheeky here and is using the horns because of Jack Nicholson's character name, you know, Daryl Van Horn? Well, that might be true in some sense. I mean, music is always open to this kind of interpretation. You know, yeah, this piece is also based on the main theme of the movie and it's already getting some interesting additional material, you know, beside the horns uh, that I talked about, uh, you hear also strange percussion on the bottom. Uh, other strange percussion. This score is full of strange percussion and some nice string counterpoint, which strangely enough, foreshadow a similar figure used in Schindler's List a few years later. Thank you. 
the end of the queue is inquisitive, it's not quite resolved yet. It's interesting that in this queue, when the witches are talking about Daryl, that we don't get to hear Daryl's theme as he gets out of the car and walks into his new house. But I think that's William saying that he wants the focus to remain on the three wishing for him to come to Eastwick and not give away who he is just yet. And Daryl's theme is almost an exact opposite of the witch's theme. Where their theme is very upbeat and dance-like, Daryl's theme always has something not quite right in its melody. I have never been able to see the notes on sheet music, but I can hear that the intervals are equally unsettling and seductive. And putting it in the harpsichord or on keyboard enhances that. Listen to its first true performance in the film when the elderly shopkeeper tries to remember Daryl's name after he visited her shop and bought Alex's clay sculptures. You don't know what to think of the man who is, as she said, who made her blush. And then later, as the residents of Eastwick try to remember his name, the harpsichord plays it more prominently before the witch's theme takes over to cause Felicia to fall down the stairs. And then later his theme returns as Alex draws his initial in sugar before taking off on her bike to his house. This is probably the only time we'll hear Daryl's theme sound so innocent. It's an effective theme. It's a bit, I suppose it's meant to sound a bit exotic. It's not as catchy or singable as the witch's theme, but it has a recognizable shape. So, so much so that even if you're not intently listening to the music in the film, you identify it, you identify it as a theme, you know, or as a leitmotif. It has an initial upward motion, but then it retreats, you know, and it ends a semitone higher than where it, where it started. So, it, that makes it sound a little bit unresolved. And as I said, unsettling. Yeah. Now, Daryl begins his work in Eastwick by seducing Alex, and it will be difficult at first. But he has his theme playing underneath on, I think, the harpsichord for most of this scene. It's fairly quiet for most of the scene, just working its way under Alex's skin, the same way Daryl's words are getting inside her brain and allowing Alex to let down her guard.
And then, things change as Daryl sees that he's winning. The theme goes to the flute, and finally gets a big flourish as Alex succumbs to his charms. After Daryl seduces Jane in a fiery passion, we get the most fun scene in the movie. If I had to pick one scene in this movie to show how great John Williams is, it would be the tennis game. It showcases his great talent for harmonization and orchestration as you mentioned earlier, John Maria. And you could also notice his immense talent for creating musical sync points with the visuals, which is called Mickey Mousing, a term I don't really like. And finally, his penchant for heightening the emotion of the scene without getting too much in the way. So the game itself starts with no music. Alex, Suki, Jane, and Daryl are playing doubles tennis. At first, they are taking out some aggression on each other. But then Suki hits the ball into the air and it hovers. And Williams writes a lovely rhythm made of trilling notes for the keyboard, strings, and oboes before the game resumes with a lovely melody that ebbs and flows with the back and forth of the tennis ball. Suki yells at the ball to stop, and it does, along with the orchestra, who plays the first melody until Suki hits the ball again. Here's where the real fun of the score begins, as each cymbal crash you hear coincides with the ball getting hit.
And there you have it. John Williams has composed music for a tennis ball. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. It's absolutely de delightful. Uh, I don't know whether uh, it's the harmony in the piece or the instrumentation, but this piece in particular reminds me a little bit of some cues from a TD extraterrestrial, uh, you know, go figure. Now, so once the foursome is established, you know, and all three seduction have taken place, uh, we get to an important moment because any discussion of the Witches of Eastwick score must include a talk about the ballroom scene. It definitely has to talk. We have to talk about the ballroom scene. Now, I think we're going to have differing opinions about the music for this portion of the film, but I'll let you go first. Okay. Now, for those who have not seen the movie, this comes uh, just after Daryl has successfully seduced Suki and now has all the three ladies in his clutches. As a kind of a celebration, he brings all three ladies and their children to his home where they can dance among pink balloons. Now, in the movie, we hear the aria Nessun Dorma from Puccini's opera Turandot. I imagine that the piece was used as a temp track, the scene, you know, to, as a temp track, as they often do, and that George Miller couldn't let it go at the end. So it's clear what kind of music the filmmaker wanted for the scene and what the character of the piece ought to be. But I think that John Williams' comes, uh, John Williams's composition would have been more appropriate here because the aria to me lacks of the ambiguity that Williams' pieces has. Uh, Nessun Dorma is too positive, is too soaring, and this kind of choices to me show the lack of imagination that certain directors have once they fall in love with a temp track. Now, not that Williams would mind, I think. I think that he would probably humbly admit that Puccini's aria is better than anything that he could ever come up with. But when you ask John Williams to do Puccini and he actually delivers the goods, you shouldn't be allowed to drop the music, you know. Uh, so let's hear a bit of Puccini. Now, here's the music that John Williams composed for the scene. This is a gorgeous piece. I'm sad that it was never put into the film, but it does play when the three women start laughing and float in the air. So the second part is actually in the movie.
I believe the music we heard earlier that you say was dropped in favor of Nessun Dorma was never composed for the film. I think George Miller always wanted the aria in the movie, and Williams wrote around that. Hmm. And when it came time to produce the soundtrack album, he had part of this four-minute concert piece ready to fill that gap. Note that the ballroom scene and the floating moment in the pool room after is just shy of three minutes long, even though maybe there was a little bit of editing later. Yeah, well, you may be right. Or maybe even if director George Miller settled earlier for Nessun Dorma, uh, he still wanted to keep his options open and let Williams write an alternative piece, you know, just in case. Yeah, that's a possibility as well. I think we'd have to have George Miller and John Williams here to, to kind of settle the score, as it were. So before we get to the finale, let's talk real quick about the music for Cherries. Well, it's maybe not the music for Cherries, but for the sinister act that eating them creates in the movie. Just like Daryl's theme, the Cherries theme plays a dual role. It's a bit comic with the woodwinds, but the basses and cellos give us the sinister undertones. Eating the cherries causes someone else to throw up the pits and the stems. At first, it's Felicia, who finally understands that Daryl is the devil incarnate. And when that realization comes, we hear Daryl's theme to hammer it home. And it also spells her doom. She begins spewing cherry pits, and her husband decides to kill her with some clangs in the orchestra accompanying the strikes with the fireplace iron. After this, the witches decide that they have to take down Durrell, and to do that, they have to get back into his good graces. They return to his home after shunning him following Felicia's death, and after he torments them. In this moment, Williams gives us the only blending of the witches' theme and Durrell's theme.
And so the next morning, Daryl and his butler, Fidel, drive to town to get bagels and ice cream for the pregnant women. And at the same time, the women create a voodoo doll and put a spell on Daryl. As they begin this hex, we hear their theme in the orchestra, and then something very genius. Daryl himself whistles part of the witch's theme. Of course, Jack Nicholson would not have known the notes for the witch's theme while filming since it was created after the movie was shot. But this is like a brief scene in Gidget Goes to Rome when we see two priests on a bicycle whistling the main theme. Williams made us believe the two priests were whistling the song from the film, and here Williams actually stood in front of a microphone and whistled that part himself to play over the shot of Jack Nicholson whistling. <laughs> so there you have it. You have a scene where John Williams is actually uh, dubbing Jack Nicholson. Well, I love when characters from the film, you know, hum or whistle material from the score. Uh, you have similar moments in The Incredibles or in the first Harry Potter, you know, with Hagrid playing the main theme on the flute, on the recorder. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around, you know, maybe the scores uh, incorporates uh, material heard earlier in the movie. Uh, that was done in Twisted Nerve by Bernard Herrmann. That is a piece that later was used to great effect by um, Quentin Tarantino in Kill Bill. And also in Jaws, you have one moment in the movie when the music plays uh, the Spanish ladies sea shanty, which is also a kind of an alternate theme for Quint in that movie. Now, Critics at the time uh, bashed the finale of the movie, saying the movie didn't need to have a typical Hollywood action ending. Others found it fun that there was such major change from the book. Uh, in the film, uh, Daryl becomes an actual monster, you know, and the final confrontation with Suki, Jane, and Alex is entertainingly grotesque. You know, the music really adds up to the chaos and the sense of wicked fun. Uh, in typical Williams fashion, the score gets bigger and bigger as the story progresses and in the last leg of the movie, the music is very powerful, very bombastic and in great contrast with the playful and whimsical opening cue of the film. We'll pick up the score after Jane falls from the balcony, laughing to keep herself from crashing onto the ballroom floor and you hear a nice reprise of uh, the ballroom theme on the organ before the orchestra really goes crazy. After the voodoo doll breaks, Daryl's theme gets traded off through the orchestra until the brass signal his appearance as a demon. But the witches win the day and the orchestra blares out their theme in the French horns over the sound effects. This will become typical, unfortunately, of John Williams' action scores for the rest of his career, fighting to be heard over sound effects.
gosh, I have so much fun listening to this music, John Maria. And I mentioned earlier that it had to be one of the most memorable experiences for John Williams outside of his work with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. George Miller gave his composer a good film on which to create this score that knows how to toe the line between comedy and drama, and not many composers could do that. It's not surprising that the score was nominated for an Academy Award, but what I do find interesting is that the soundtrack album got a Grammy nomination. The album presentation isn't as solid as previous soundtracks, but putting the Devil's Dance Suite and the full ballroom scene music on there had to help it. With only two themes written for the film, I would have thought people would have found the album repetitive. Now, Williams didn't win any big awards for the Eastwick score, with the original score Oscar going to The Last Emperor, which was unstoppable that year. And the Grammy for Best Soundtrack Album went to Ennio Morricone's score for The Untouchables, which I find to be one of Morricone's best. In any case, there is a bit of history with this soundtrack release. It was the last score by John Williams to only be released on vinyl the same year as the film hit theaters. What I found odd, John Maria, is that the other score John Williams wrote in 1987, Empire of the Sun, got a vinyl and CD release in 1987. I wonder why that didn't happen for Eastwick. Well, the only educated guess I can make is that maybe back then record labels uh, treated uh, licensing for a vinyl release differently than licensing for a CD release. You know, like a little like today, you know, releases on physical support and streaming platforms are considered uh, differently. But I really don't know. Uh, what I do know is that any future release of a complete score will have to license music from both Warner Bros. Uh, Warner Records and from Warner Bros. Pictures, because despite the name, these are two completely unrelated separate entities. I hope that we'll get a complete presentation soon. Oh, I, I imagine it's coming down the road. Producers John Peters and Peter Goober caught lightning in a bottle with the Witches of Eastwick. Of course, as we said before, Jack Nicholson was the perfect casting choice, but it was Cher who was really having the big year among the actors. Eastwick was one of three movies she would do in 1987, all of them stylistically different. She also starred in Suspect as a lawyer and as a widow in A Love Triangle in Moonstruck. She won an Oscar for Moonstruck and had the distinction of being in two of the top ten highest grossing films of 1987. Peters and Goober managed to snag Nicholson for their 1989 blockbuster Batman and also wanted to bring John Williams in as the composer. And why not? Williams did so well with creating themes for Superman that he was the logical choice for another DC superhero, Batman. But his obligations to Steven Spielberg and the third Indiana Jones movie meant Williams had to decline the invitation to score Batman. But this would not be the final time John Williams and John Peters worked together. You'll have to stay tuned to the baton to find out what film reunited Williams and Peters. Well, <laughs> I'm afraid I need to give a look to John Williams' filmography because I really don't remember what full movie that would be. Yeah, I bet a lot of people don't know because they often don't look at producer credits. But I will say this, it is definitely not a comedy. So, John Maria, I have really enjoyed this discussion of the score of the Witches of Eastwick. Uh, if you remember my co-host for the Space Camp episode, Brian Thompson, said he doesn't listen to this score often and I fear that's true for a lot of John Williams fans. I hope you all take the time to not only listen to the score on the album, but hear how great it works in the film, especially with scenes like the tennis game. So John Maria, thanks so much for joining me today, and I look forward to having you back on the show once more. We're going to talk about the 1995 film, Sabrina. Well, well thank you for having me, Jeff. It was a great fun. And I'll be glad to be back on your show, even if it means that I'll have to watch that stinker again. <laughs> but let me once you, let me once more thank uh, Maestro Simone Pedroni for the assistance that he gave me for the analysis of the Devil's Dance. Uh, once again, thanks to my brother Maurizio for uh, digging up the original score. Well, and thank you for letting me play on your podcast a little bit. It was great, great fun. I love the score. I don't think I can evangelize enough about this score because it's really, really, really great. Yeah, it's sad that it's a hit and gem because it really should be one of everybody's top films and scores for John Williams. 
Well, you know, it says something about John Williams. I mean, you know, his, his pedigree is such that this score can pass as a minor score. Well, right. it would be the major score, the best score of any other composer. But for John Williams, this is a minor score, a hidden gem. My gosh. Yeah, you've hit the nail right on the head. And as always, I want to thank everybody out there listening. And thank you so much for taking the time to tune into this episode. So as I said, John Williams closed out 1987 with a reunion with Steven Spielberg. This time for the World War II film Empire of the Sun featuring a film debut by a child actor who would become a superstar in his adult years. I'm looking forward to learning more about this score that I have never really explored until now. And you know how to reach me if you want to send me your comments, jeffswim at aol.com. And keep writing those reviews for Apple Podcasts. They are a great read. See you next time, and until then, the baton is down.